There is a famous study from Princeton that was done by John Darley and Daniel Bateson a few years ago. They had a simple test. They wanted to see how students would respond if they set up a true-to-life Good Samaritan scenario. So what they did is they gathered students and they randomly picked them to give a five-minute speech. And there were three categories that they received at random. The first group had to give a speech. Why are you in the ministry? Second one, what is it like to go to seminary? And the third group was told to give a speech on the story of the Good Samaritan. The way they set up the scenario is the students would meet in one building and they'd have to cross one by one over a courtyard to a second building where a group was waiting for them to give the speech. And on the steps of that second building, they had a man on the steps who, when they would pass him by, would hold his stomach and cry out in pain. They wanted to see if people would stop. There was a second part to the study, though. Each group, no matter what speech they were given, randomly, as the students were brought into a room one by one, they were told one of two things. Either you have plenty of time, just go across the courtyard and take your time. They're ready for your speech, but you have plenty of time to get there. The second group, they said, you're already late. You need to hurry. They wanted to know, did the subject matter have an impact on how people acted? Would they notice, stop and help the man in pain? Did it matter if they were talking about reasons they wanted to be in a ministry? Did it matter if they talked about what they liked about seminary? And most of all, did it matter if a group was getting ready to give a speech about the Good Samaritan's parable? Well, they found that none of the categories impacted whether or not students stopped to help the man. The only thing that mattered was which group they were in when it came to time constraints. The students who had plenty of time, 63% stopped to check on this man. The group that were told, you're already late, you need to hurry. Imagine this, only 10% stopped to help this guy. Interesting, when we stop and think about our lives are all very busy, what is it that we notice? There's a great parable where a man goes to a monk and says, please give me a word of wisdom. The monk writes on a piece of paper, hands it to the man. One word, it simply says, attention. This person says, that's not very profound. Please tell me a word of wisdom. The monk takes the piece of paper, writes again, and hands it back. It says, attention, attention. The man says, I want you to give me something I can use for my life. The monk writes again, hands back the note. This time it says, attention, attention, attention. And frustrated, he says, what does that mean? And the monk says, attention means attention. What is it? that you notice. What is it that you pay attention to? As we've said, what is wrong is always available, and so is what is right. And we're going to see what Paul says about how we should live, how we should notice things, give attention to, when we have this moment he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's what Paul writes. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
Now, the first and foremost part of that veil, Paul says there's a spiritual blindness. And in Corinth, they were blinded by their commitment to religion, a religion that said, if I keep the commandments, if I have enough self-effort, if I try hard enough, God will be pleased. And Paul said, that's a blindness. We have to know we can't keep the commandments. We can't impress God. We have to trust that he is going by his grace to forgive us, set us on high in Christ and give us a new nature. And it was a great wrestling match in that first century as it is today. People are caught up in the self-effort, if I just have enough willpower. And Paul says that's a blindness. There's a veil that covers the eyes. And the veil is taken away when we see Christ. It's actually a beautiful verse when it comes to discussions about does God exist? Because what you're seeing here in Paul's statement is, if the veil is taken away in Christ, then people in Christ ought to live different lives. And so the power of the gospel is not just in studying the gospel, but seeing it played out in people's day-to-day living. Here's an example of that. This is Robert Ingersoll, an agnostic from the 1800s. He was a popular speaker. And he was going to one town to give reasons why he doubted God existed. And as he stood before the crowd, he opened a letter he had just received and he read what was written. It was written to him by a friend from school. And this man had told him, when we parted ways, I eventually married. I had two children. But he said, I also had an alcohol problem and I lost everything. And this man said, until one day I collapsed drunk in the street. And some people picked me up, took me to a mission, cleaned me up, got me sober, shared the gospel. And here's what his friend wrote that Ingersoll read before that crowd. Old friend, would you tell the people that you're against the religion that came down to the lowest depths of hell and found me? Would you speak against the Savior who stooped and lifted me, rebuilt my home, and brought joy to my wife and children? And Ingersoll paused and looked out at the crowd. And then he said this, I have nothing to say against a religion that will do this for a man. I am here to talk about a religion that is being preached but not practiced by so many. I find no fault in Christ. Powerful. What do we notice? What do we give attention to? How do we live differently with the veil lifted so that we can see more clearly in Christ? Perhaps it was said just as well by a stranger. Last week, I went to a used bookstore and I picked up a book on theology I was home reading it this week. The chapter was about sin and redemption. And whoever owned the book before, at the end of the chapter, simply wrote, handwritten, He is committed to me. That's the beauty of the veil being lifted. To know that veil taken away, He is committed to me. Now, this next statement was made by somebody very well known. See if you can guess who this person might be. They were writing to a friend and they said, 
Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness are so great. I look and do not see. I listen and I do not hear. We'll come back to that person here in just a moment. Charles Spurgeon said, the higher a man is in grace, the lower he will be in his own esteem. It's the picture of saying, you know what? I recognize the law, the scripture is holy, inspired, but trying to keep the do thou's and avoid the thou shalt nots on my own. We all have failure. We all have places where we sin. And that's the veil that blinds people, though. They think, if I just try harder, then I'll have victory. The reality is we surrender to Christ, trust that grace is greater than all our sin. That veil is taken away. And here's what Paul says next. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When that veil is taken away, there is freedom in Christ. Freedom from sin. Freedom from guilt, freedom from fear, freedom from countless other things promised that we are victorious in Christ. That is the freedom. When Paul writes to Corinth, he says, you know, when you break the law, when you break the commandments, you have guilt. Here's freedom, he says, in Christ, that guilt is lifted because you know that sin is paid for and you carry it no more. Monica and I love the song by DC Talk where they write in the light. I keep trying to find a life on my own apart from you. I am the king of excuses. I've got one for every selfish thing I do. What's going on inside of me? I despise my own behavior. This only serves to confirm my suspicion that I am still a man in need of a savior. You see, Scripture, it serves the purpose to reveal to us as a mirror that we are imperfect, that we have sin. And so the veil is lifted when we surrender to there is one perfect, and in Him I have freedom and peace and joy and His presence. That's when we see. That's the freedom Paul speaks of. And if you have that here today, if you can say the blindness, the veil has been lifted, and I know that freedom, you might simply, simply cry out and say, thank you, God, for that this week. If you don't know that freedom, then simply cry out and say, Lord, I want to see. I want to be free. There's a great verse. Psalm 139 says this, before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. For David, he says, God, you know what I'm going to say. You know what I think. You know what I'm going to do. And knowing that you know hems me in. It's Ingersoll saying, I have no fault in Christ. What I oppose are those who don't practice what they preach. David says the solution to that is to know that God sees all things. To know that he sees the dark parts to know that he sees the sin, to know there's no way to hide from him what we do, and to say, since he knows all things, let me alter my decisions and choose what is right and what is holy, what is good, what is high character. So here's a test. 
And this is profound here that Ken Blanchard, who wrote business books, sold millions of copies, but he also writes books now about his faith in Christ and especially about character to practice what you preach. Simple test, and here's all you have to do. And here's how you can know, are you living like Jesus? And as Ken Blanchard said, he had written books about goals and about character and about integrity. And he said, when I did that, when I looked to the life of Jesus, I realized he did all of that perfectly. And he said, when I think about character, here's a simple test. And the test is, ask your husband or your wife, if you're married, ask your family, ask your kids, ask those who know you best. Three questions about your presence and your character in these situations. One, in a time of crisis, what would your family say? Remember when Jesus was on the boat, disciples were there. He went to sleep. A great storm hits. What they do in crisis? They went into panic. Lord, don't you care? We're going to perish. And what did Jesus do? He woke up and said, where's your faith? He said, be calm, be still, and the waters ceased. And the disciples said, surely this is Messiah. What do you do in a time of crisis? Do you get more stressed or does your faith increase? Second question, what do you do character-wise in a time of failure when things don't go the way you wanted them to or thought they should? What do you do with disappointment? Do you have perfect peace or do you become more selfish and bitter? And the third question on the opposite scale, what do you do in a time of victory? Who gets the credit in your life when things are going well? Whose are you really? When we come to the place and say, that's the character I want, just like Jesus, we start to align ourselves with his word, his actions. You know, Southwest has a great axiom. They write this about success. But the success is holistic. Talking about your spiritual health. Are you successful in your relationships as well as in your goals and dreams? And the axiom is this. Success is never owned. It is only rented. And here's the key. That rent is due every day. Every day and many times that day, we have to decide. Am I going to practice what I preach? Am I going to notice what God notices? Am I going to give attention to the things he wants me to see? It's a great article by Rory Vaden about the storms of life. He moved out west and said, you know, out west, the horizon you can see for miles. So you can see the storms coming when they're far away. And he said, here's the thing I learned. There's a very unique response to a herd of buffalo when a storm hits. He said, if you watch cows, when the lightning and the thunder and the storm start to arrive, they will run in the opposite direction, trying to outrun the storm. What happens is the storm overtakes them and they are going in the same direction as the storm. Therefore, it lasts much longer. 
He said, Buffalo, when the thunder and lightning begin, they turn and face the storm and then they charge into it. And as they charge into it, they come out the other side much more quickly. And he said, that's the challenge in life. When the storms hit, do we run away in fear or do we face the storm in faith and enter into it and say, I have all victory in Christ? As again, Paul would say in the next verse in 2 Corinthians 3, only in union with Messiah is that veil removed. In union with him on a day-to-day basis, then we can say, yes, his word hems me in. It guides me and keeps me within the boundaries of where he wants me to be. The veil has been lifted. I can see clearly where I am and where I need to be and know the only bridge is Christ. So who made that quote? Jesus has a special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness are so great. I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. The person who said that was this lady here, Mother Teresa. And when she died, her diaries had statements like this, and people were shocked to know that she wrestled with faith and doubt. But here's the thing. Her spiritual pain gave her strength. And she entered into the storm, and even in the doubts, it caused her even more to say, I want to serve people. That's character. What do you do in times of crisis, times of failure, times of victory? What do you do day to day? knowing in him the veil has been taken away. So we close with this man, Rory Vaden. He's a successful business owner. He started out selling books, and the books were the volume library. He would sell these from door to door. Did very well, and he went to one particular house in a not-so-nice neighborhood that needed some upkeep, And he knocked on the door and a single mom and a 10-year-old boy came to the door. He told them he was selling these books. The set cost $300. The boy was so excited. I want that, mom. And as Rory began to leave, the woman said, We don't have the money yet. Please come back in three months. At the end of the summer, we will find the money. And Rory said, I stooped down and handed an envelope to this young boy and said, I'll see you at the end of the summer. As he would share, he eventually forgot about that commitment until that day arrived on his calendar and he saw the note to go back to this house. And he went back, as he said, he knocked on the door and from the other side, he heard the boy say, mom, the man with the books is here. And the boy opened the door. He said, please come in. My mom can't come to the door. And Rory said, I realized much had changed in those three months. The single mom was very ill on the couch. And she began to tell me the story. She said, when you left, my son, he mowed lawns, sold baseball cards. He had a lemonade stand. And he had the $300. But then things did not go so well. And I got ill, 
and we had to use that money. And Rory said, what do you do in a moment like that? He said, I simply hugged the boy and I said, I wish you the best. I went outside and I got in my car and I drove away. But Rory has a strong faith in Christ. He knows what it is to live with the veil lifted and to be free in Christ. And he said, you know what I then did? I did what anybody else would do. I turned the car around. I snuck back up to that house. I put the books on the porch. I wrote a note and simply said, these are a gift. He said, I got back in the car and I drove away. And in that spiritual insight, he said, I realized the truth. That little boy taught me about the secret of sacrifice. It's the person who makes the sacrifice that gets the gift. Attention. 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 What will we notice this week now that the veil has been lifted?